All right, let's do this. Hi, folks. Psychic Medium Angelo here. Welcome to the Psychic Realm Podcast Network. You know, we have a show called Psychic in the City. Well, you're not watching that show. <laughs> this is our new one. This yes. is Wrestling with the Future. And you'll understand why in a moment we call it Wrestling with the Future. Yeah. This is the show where we talk about all things entertainment, sports, uh, you name it, we're going to talk about it. And the man, the guru, the mountainous, fountainous, informationist, <laughs> the guy who knows all things sport, Jeff the Ref Robinson. How's that for an intro, Jeff? <laughs> uh, I couldn't think it better there. Um, thank you so much, Angela. I really appreciate that uh, intro. Uh, where would you like me to begin? I mean, like, uh, what, you know? You know... I, I called you the mountainous, fountainous, voluminous uh, uh, fountain of information. When yeah. it comes to all things, uh, MMA, wrestling, uh, football, baseball, basketball, yeah. you are the sports guru. I was like, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely followed my fair share and, and, and uh, know, know a little bit of knowledge there. Yeah, I wouldn't say. I mean, wrestling is right where I'm the deepest. And, and hence the name Jeff the Ref Robinson. Yeah. I started out as a uh, pro wrestling referee um, on the independents. Uh, I've done a little bit of everything. Um, never, you know, can't say I ever really got in the ring and wrestled, but I mean, I've definitely been in there with any and everybody. Um, it's uh, go, my career in, in wrestling goes back 20 plus years. Um, when yeah. was your when was your first promotion? What was it, and where was it? Uh, it was it was a it was a uh, local promotion uh, down in it was an independent down in North Carolina. I couldn't even tell you their name. Um, we were in a National Guard armory. Had about two hundred people there, and uh, nervous as hell. Um, you know, they tell you, okay, go out there, kid, and uh, you got you know you got this match. And uh, they're gonna, you know, and and here's the finish. Okay. That was that. Now there you go. And there you go. It's like, and you're on your own. Yeah, here you go. Good luck. <laughs> and it's like, uh, okay. Talk about a crash course. Oh, it was. It was a definite crash course because I mean I learned a lot though just by being in there with different guys that would teach me, and they would say, okay. You know, and, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of people don't look at the referee as being that important, um, whereas they probably are more behind the scenes than you would even realize as far as calling a match, helping guys through a match if they get lost. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I'm getting into it a little bit there, but I mean, even the whole scene and not heard, I mean, you got to sit there, you know, you think about it, the referee has to be in the right position at all times. Otherwise, sure. if he's in the wrong spot, boom, bang, you're done. You know, like, I right. I, I mean, I, I can tell you there was one one time, this is uh, something I go back to, I was in the ring and um, Hurricane Helms hadn't been Hurricane Helms yet, he wasn't Hurricane on WWE, wasn't anybody, he was, he was getting a little bit of, you know, talk about, you know, from the indies, but nothing, you know, hadn't done anything yet. Anyway, we were, they, they put us in a, I was used to a 16 by 16 or an 18 by 18 ring. They put us in a 20 by 20. I wasn't used to it. My footing was a little bit off, my timing. Right. And every time he went to go hit the road. Just, just so people know, not to interrupt you, but just so people know, 
there are four sizes of uh, traditional rings. There's 16 right. by 16, which is traditionally a training ring. Yeah, yeah, it is, and a lot of and a lot of your independents will use that because it's uh, smaller and easier for the guys to do a lot of their moves or flips on their dives and whatever. Right. Um, the 18 by 18 is the next step up. Yep. And that's the uh, the indie show ring. Yeah, that's generally your indies, and that used to be what WCW used back in the day when they were around. Right. Then the 20 by 20 is called the pro style ring. Yep. And now, WWE uses a 24 by 24. Correct. That's a big ring. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and you know, people don't realize, I mean, you get, you, you kind of get used to your steps when you're in the ring. You kind of time it out. You go one, two, that's the 16 by 16, one, two, three, 18 by 18, and one, two, three, four is your, your 20 by 20 as far as, like, how many steps it takes from the center to get to the ropes. Anyway, me and Shane, we were in there. It was 20 by 20. I wasn't, my footing was just, my, it made my timing off. So every time he would go to hit the ropes to go do a dive or anything, I just happened to be in his way. And finally, he just turned to me and goes, damn it, kid. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, Shane. Off night, man. <laughs> it was. Yeah. Just one of them things that can happen, you know. Sure. And, uh, you never want it to, but, you know, it's bound to. And, um. Yeah, I've had crazy, I mean, from that to Wahoo, McDaniel, you know, telling me, okay, I'm going to throw a chop at you, just stand there and take it. Uh, okay, yes, sir, no problem. It'll be an honor, <laughs> you know. Right, well, what do you say in that situation? I, I mean, you, you don't. Exactly. <laughs> you, you, you sit there and you take it. So, um, yeah, I would say wrestling is my passion. I love all sports, but... Uh, Wrestling is definitely what my passion is. Now, you and I have had private conversations. Many. Uh, yeah. And your knowledge goes back far beyond your birth date. Yeah. So you studied the history. Oh, I have. I've gone deep into the history and the... the you know, you're a historian. Oh, I would like to consider myself a, a mild historian of wrestling. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, I go back, my first live match, giving away my age, my first live match was 1965. All right. I saw Rocky Fitzpatrick. Yeah. Who is actually Bob Orton Sr., Cowboy Bob Orton's father. Yep, Randy Orton's granddad. Right? Wrestling Bruno San Martino. Wow. For a title, title match. On the show that night was Killer Kowalski, Spiros Arion, Captain Lou Albano and Tony Altamori, the Valiant Brothers, and Haystacks Calhoun. Crazy. And that was house show. Crazy. But your knowledge goes back that far. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Study. I like to think that it does. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I'm more of a Middle Atlantic guy, but I definitely am branching out and I'm learning more and more about the other territories that were around back then. And um, I mean, I do know some WWE history. I was very, very good friends with uh, my uh, good friend of mine, Ivan Koloff. Um, right. Uh, he, you know, I called him Uncle Ivan. I meant it. Um, 
Yeah, that was a name that a lot of the boys referred to him, Uncle Ivan. Yeah, if, if you were in with him, you called him Uncle. Otherwise, you just called him Ivan. And you kind of knew who his his inner circle was. And uh, he was there. Don't know Mid-Atlantic. They might if we mentioned the name Jim Crockett. There you go. Jim Crockett Promotions is the old Mid-Atlantic territory. When I say territory, that's what it used to be, folks. It used to actually not all be WWE, and now you got a new one coming up on All Elite. Now, Jeff, tell everybody uh, about the two Jim Crockett's that ran that promotion. Oh, well, you had Jim Crockett Sr. who started out in the, probably the 1930s. And he started mainly doing, a, uh, you know, ballparks and, and rec centers and, and various armories and around that area. And then when he passed away, his son, Jim Crockett Jr., took over. And that was in, uh, well, he took over in the 1970s. But um, they, they really experienced a wrestling boom um, by 1985. And uh, they were... I mean, when people considered the NWA, they, they were actually talking a lot of times with Jim Crockett because that was who you saw on WTBS, which was based out of Atlanta. Right. was uh, the old, uh, used to be the old Georgia promotion. Georgia but, Championship Wrestling. Right. And then um, in 1984, everything kind of shifted. Uh, what happened in 1984? That was when you had the infamous that they called it Black Saturday. Now, um, tell everybody what we were talking about when we say Black Saturday. Black Saturday was when WTBS had, well, basically Jerry Briscoe and his brother, Gerald and uh, Jack Briscoe. I don't know who the I don't know who the other players were. I want to say there may have been one other, but um, they went and they sold their shares of Georgia Championship Wrestling to Vince McMahon Jr. Vince right. McMahon Jr. was making a power play at that point in time to pretty much take over the wrestling world. And um, at that point in time, he turned around and everybody was used to seeing Georgia Championship Wrestling. And all of a sudden, they said, welcome to Georgia Championship Wrestling. Here he is, Vince McMahon. And that was a shock to the system. Oh, it, 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 nobody was used to... Vince McMahon and what he what he had. We we also need to set the tone here. Ready? Oh, I disappeared. There I am. Hey. Okay, you ready? All right. So when last we left off? Okay, four, three, two. All right. Uh, well, right after our our. Uh, Untimely break there. We are. <laughs> we're back. Yeah. Uh, we were speaking about Black Saturday. Yeah. Um, I was, I was telling, you know, basically, uh, Georgia Championship, everybody was used to watching Watch it. 605. They tuned in and, and you got your, your, uh, your normal, I can't even think of the guy's name. And he goes, and ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Mr. Vince McMahon. And it, they said, Literally, the, the phone lines lit up at the TBS uh, down there saying, hey, we we want our Georgia championship. We don't want this WWF. Right. And Ted Turner was looking for a way to get them off the air because he said Vince wasn't honoring his end of the deal, which was 
he was still supposed to produce studio wrestling right from, from down there in the TBS studios. Now let me interrupt you for just a moment because we need to, to for people that are maybe may too young to have lived through that time, fans today, we need to, the landscape uh, explained to us. Georgia Championship Wrestling was a southern-based company. Yep. Vince McMahon represented everything about the North. Yes. So it was clearly a declaration of war on some level. Oh, yeah. No, and you had... And the other thing is that you had two juniors uh, explain the dynamics there because you know more about that than I do. Talk about Vince Jr. and Jim Crockett Jr.? Yes, sir. Well, I mean, you, you have Vince Jr. who was, he grew up in the wrestling business. He, he saw what it would eventually become. And what we, he, he basically had the vision of what it is today, way back then. Right. You had Jim Crockett Jr., who was still territory, Southern-based. You stay out of my area, and I'll stay out of yours. You don't promote my area, and I won't promote in yours. And, and right. Vince Jr. said, bunk all that. Why do I got to acknowledge those territory lines? Right. And then you also had, you know, okay, so the Black Saturday goes down real quick. This is what ended up happening. They said, fine, we'll give you championship wrestling from Georgia. We'll put it on TBS. We'll put it on at 8.05 in the morning on Sundays. That, that was their, their counter, kind of. Sure. You had Jim Crockett Jr. who said, I want to get on major, you know, TBS cable TV. Right. He made the pitch to Turner. Ted Turner said, look, if you can get Vince McMahon off, I'll give you the, I will give you that time slot. He went to Junior. He said, Vince Junior, he said, what's it going to take for you to, you know, leave? And he said, give me a million dollars. Jim Crockett right. Junior basically stroked a check, a million dollars. Now, here, here's what people don't also know. A little bit more background here. Okay. That's what million. I want. I want the juicy stuff. Vince, Vince Junior takes that million dollar check, pretty much funds WrestleMania 1 with it. Right. So I know where you were going. In essence, Jim Crockett Jr. paid for WrestleMania, WrestleMania. One, which helped bury him even further in a lot of people's eyes. Yeah. Because Vince Jr. went and he said, I'm going to run WrestleMania 1. I'm going to put it in New York City. I'm going to put it in the hub of what WWF is in Madison Square Garden. And he made it to where L.A., wanted to be a part of it along right. with the New York people. Right. So you had celebrities wanting to be a part of this wrestling event that nobody had heard of. Keep right. in mind if you're to go and look through you you know if you're to look it up and you knew your basic which you would from being up that way, but your basic house show cards where, you know, you had, you know, middle-of-the-line matches, and then you would have your world title match or, you know, right. whatever. WrestleMania won, other than Hogan and Mr. T teaming up against Piper 
and Orndorff was nothing right. more than a house show. It's interesting because I watched an interview today with Tito Santana. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, at the time of WrestleMania 1, and I just found this out today. Again, uh, I don't follow it like you do. But I found out something interesting. Tito Santana, at the time of WrestleMania 1, was smack dab in the middle of a countrywide feud with Greg the Hammer Valentine. That's absolutely right. Why then, my question to you, why then did Tito Santana open the show with Playboy Buddy Rose? Playboy Buddy Rose was also under a hood, going by the name of the Executioner. Correct. Um, not that that really matters, but that's just a little bit more you know, part of history. Uh, I, I really, I think it was because it was a house show that they were setting up. It was nothing, it wasn't meant to be. Everything was actually geared towards the main event, which was Hogan and Mr. T and Orndorff and, and, and uh, um, Piper. Now, Jeff, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Because of the booking of that show, did Vince honestly believe in himself that he think it was actually going to fail? Or did he have this sense that it would succeed? He had no clue. He actually gambled everything on that one event. He gambled. I heard he mortgaged his house. He had mortgaged his house. He, he would have. Well, okay. Jim Crockett Jr.'s money helped push him to where he was able to put the whole thing together. But. He Vincent mortgaged his house. He he pretty much was, he rolled the dice, and he said, "If this makes it, and we you know make money, we're 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 going to be gangbusters." If now, not, Jeff, what done. year are we talking about? Nineteen eighty-five. Now, nineteen eighty-five, a million dollars went a hell of a lot further than it does today. Yes, it does. But you got to look at the celebrities he was having to pay that came in. Well, he had Liberace, uh, which I'm sure. Liberace, I mean, granted he was older, but he was a New York staple. Everybody knew who he was, and I'm sure he wasn't cheap. And it was Muhammad Ali. I'm sure Muhammad didn't come in for a, a more less than six figures. There was a Rock New York Yankees baseball manager, Billy Martin. Yeah, I mean, Billy Martin, maybe maybe 50 to 100 grand. I mean, the Rockettes alone. I was going to ask you about the Rockettes, but did they... Oh, I, you got to figure that they, feed they, the day fetch. You got to figure either, you know, high five figures to six figures. I mean, maybe a hundred grand to get them in. So you got most of your, but you got your budget. A million dollars is already spent. Oh yeah. And then you got to pay the boys. Yeah. So you're rolling the dice and you got to pay Mr. T. And not pay his entourage. Right. And not to mention, oh, I forgot about Mr. T. Yeah. He was actually in on the show. Yeah. And not to mention, at the time, there was no cable pay-per-view. No. Nope. This was closed circuit. Which, to and tell explain people. Explain how that works to people. Well, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, you would go to either your local movie theater that may be airing it, and or uh, your, your local arena would have big screens that drop down, and they'd say, you know, starting time or whatever, you know, be there. You show up, 
and then they would just start airing it live from it was by satellite aired you know to wherever your local place was that was airing it movie theater or local arena whatever and you would buy the tickets i mean i i, I can remember watching uh Starcade, which was uh, the NWA Jim Crockett's uh, big deal, and watching that on the big screen, and going there to the local arena, and, and it, it's crazy as to watch these screens just drop down. Everybody's there like they're watching the matches, but right. <laughs> so now, Black Saturday turns into this. McMahon gets his million dollars. Right, he goes away. Ted Turner now buys a company that he renames from Georgia Championship Wrestling to World Championship Wrestling. And he didn't buy he didn't buy that actually until 1988. And he bought that from Jim Crockett Jr. Okay, so what happens between 85 and 88? What's the the timeline? Well, Jim Crockett Jr. was just plugging away and he was on TBS and World Championship Wrestling was actually what they just called the uh, the Saturday night show, the 605 Saturday night show. Which, right. Which they would use that to more or less promote your house shows, to promote your, low, you know, your angles, your big angles, or, to, you know, the, the, you know, somebody may get taken out for, you know, a time period. And a lot of times whenever that happened, it was because they were getting ready to go on tour to Japan. Right. Or, or you know. Wherever. Now, Jeff, was that still part of the National Wrestling Alliance? Yes. Jim Crockett. Was, Explain that dynamic. Well, the National Wrestling Alliance was all the other territory promotions that were not owned by Vince McMahon or Vern Gagne, who had the AWA. And it was, it consisted of uh, very, the various territories they had. You know, their heads of the territory, which you had Florida, which was owned by Eddie Graham. And then when Eddie Graham passed away, he went to his son, Mike. Um, you had World Class that was down there in Texas. You had uh, Portland, which was up, you know, Portland, Oregon area. That was owned by Don Owen. Um, you still had uh, the Maivias down in Hawaii, who were still a part of the NWA Alliance, even though they weren't really promoting, but they still allowed her to, you know, have a vote and whatnot. And for history's sake, tell people who the Maivias are and how they are relevant today. Uh, the Maivia was, uh, uh, well, for one, she was the very, very first female promoter ever um, in wrestling, or one of. Um, and history would say maybe a little bit differently. But anyway, uh, it was Peter Maivia. Peter Maivia is the grandfather of uh, the one, the only, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Um he and uh, and he's also the grandfather of pretty much the Samoan dynasty as we know him today. The Anawai, um, which that is that would be Afa, Sika, Roman Reigns, and everybody that they have had says Roman, the Uso, Batu, the Uso, yes, I mean, you name them, they all had a, I mean. I know the joke is if they're Samoan, then they're part of the the family. I actually forgot about Siviafi. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's one that a lot of people don't really remember, but he is part of the family. So, right, um, you know, and they, I mean, their 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 family tree and lineage goes long and far. Now, were they also part of Samu and Fatu? Yeah, Samu Fatu, Fatu is actually Rikishi. Oh, okay, and, I didn't uh, know that. 
Yeah, yeah. And Rikishi is, you know, we all know who Rikishi is and who he became. So, um, and Samu Fatu are the, were the Wild Samoans, or the, um, um, Samoan headhunters. Who were the Samoan headhunters? Oh, the, the head shrinkers is what, who they became in the WWF. Oh, I got you. Okay. Um, cause you know, Vince, he's got to change your name. God forbid you keep your, your name, uh, yes, I still own your name. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I want to step on those toes quite yet, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you go in and all of a sudden, you know, you, you would no longer be Angelo. He would just say, okay, we're going to look at you. Okay. We're going to name you uh, George. And, uh, <laughs> yes. And you kind of go with it. Why? Because he's paying you the big bucks. I mean, sure. uh, I mean, let's be honest. Why did most of them, you know, are, are they willing to? But anyway, you know, going back through history, you had uh, you had the NWA. The NWA consisted of the different territories, and they all voted on the NWA world champion. Ric Flair is considered one of the last traveling world champions who would travel the various territories. You would have your guy who was on top who... You may look like a million dollars. He may be your champion, whatever. You right. say, okay, he's the number one contender for the NWA world title. Ric Flair would come in. Normally, he would, you know, call the guy out on TV. They would have a little, you know, hubbub on, on, on your local studio TV wrestling. Right. You you would give the the your local guy the win in some way, you know, whether it was a tag match or, you know, they Flair called him out. He rips Flair's, you know, suit off. There's a referee there. He counts one, two, three. Therefore, you would set up the house shows for the following week or two, however long they would have Rick there. And he would go around to their main, you know, their main areas facing their challenger. Right. And they and and it would sell, normally sell out or be a close to a sellout because the fans were convinced that their, their, their champion was going to beat Ric Flair. Why? Right. Because they did it on TV. Sure. And it worked. It was brilliant, and it worked. And they would continue to do that. I mean, even once, I would say almost like Crockett got a, a stranglehold on it by 86. He was pretty much, the rest of the territories had kind of died out by then. Um, the world class had pulled out from the NWA um, because Fritz wanted his boys to get a run with the belt again. And they, they they said, no, your boys are... Now, it's, that, that's a very good point. Explain to people how the Dallas, Texas promotion owned by Fritz Von Erich um, changed the dynamics of the wrestling industry. Now, keep in mind, now you probably know better than I, but I know of at least four full-time wrestling territories in Texas... Yeah, there yeah. was Dallas, yep, uh, which was the Von Erichs, Houston, which was Paul Bosch, yep, Amarillo, which was the Funks, yeah, and El Paso, which was Gory Guerrero, right, and and El Paso and Amarillo have pretty much. Am I am I missing anything? No, you're not, not at all. Um, El Paso and Amarillo had pretty much dried up by the seventies. Okay. Um, so the 80s, you pretty much you had Fritz von Erich and Houston, Paul Bosch. And Paul Bosch had local Houston TV. He had a outreach as far as like a lot of the local TV stations. But he maintained just the Houston area as his territory. 
Uh, okay. Fritz ran Dallas and around Dallas, a lot of the little towns around Dallas. But Dallas, he, there was a little arena known as the Sportatorium, which world-class set up. They had TV. They were one of the one of the first to actually get on cable because he struck a deal with, of all places, CBN, the Christian Broadcast Network. Right. Which would send, they would say, okay, we, you know, different places that would say, we want your tapes. So CBN was sending their tapes over to Israel. Next thing you know is world class is a hot item over in Israel and the Von Erichs are gods still to this day. They're, they, I mean... It's strange, isn't it? It is. Kevin and it, Kevin and his boys went there for a tour, and they treated them like they were royalty. And as crazy as that sounds, I mean, you're talking thirty plus years later, and they're still yeah. they're still looked at as the you know these figures. Now, real quick, sidebar, funny story, good story, something about me. <laughs> um, I'm ready, ready for it. Uh, I want to say it was 87, 88. Um, Kerry had just come back from his motorcycle accident, which very few people at the time knew that he actually was wrestling without a foot and wrestling with a prosthetic, which... Explain how that came about. He was in a very, very severe motorcycle accident. Um, He was coming around the corner. He hit a car uh, or a car hit him. He was thrown, and he, it was severely, I mean, his ankle was pretty much crushed. Right. And then, if you go with what rumor was, he got up in the middle of the night when he shouldn't have, tried walking on it, did more damage to it. They said, we're going to have to amputate it. And to know, unless you've actually been in a ring, you can't really appreciate what he was able to accomplish wrestling, basically, with one foot. I encourage people watching this to go on to YouTube and just uh, just search the name Kerry Von Erich. Yep. And when you watch him, keep in mind that this man is wrestling basically with a prosthetic foot. Yeah, I, I believe would, I would, his, his right foot. I would say look up anything after 1988 and see what he was able to do. After 88? Um, yeah, 87, 88, yeah, yeah, 87. And the accident was what year, Jeff? 86. 1986. Yep. So he has his leg crushed in a, a, a severely damaging motorcycle accident. Right, right. Yep, yep. And he goes to walk on it and snaps it some more, yep. so they have to take it off. Correct. There but he go. doesn't stop wrestling because he doesn't know anything else. And that, and I mean, you know, it was a family business. True. So, and you know, his father, Fritz Von Erich, started, I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, back in the 40s, am I right? Yeah, Fritz started in the 40s to 50s, and by the 1960s, he was a, he was a, the main Texas promoter down there in Dallas and whatnot. So, <laughs> he, uh, and, and he went by Fritz Von Erich because... They said if we make you a German, he knew then that he was going to get heat and, you know, able to go anyway. Right. But we're, my, my, my story real quick was they were affiliated with CBN still by 87, 88. My mom worked for CBN or a, or a branch of CBN. 
and there was a guy that she, you know, that was in her department that was producing a commercial. And he said, we're bringing in the Von Erichs to do this commercial. He said, is there any way, he was like, I know this sounds crazy, he told my mom. He was like, but I need Jeff to consult with. He said, he's the only wrestling fan I know that can help me write this commercial so that it comes out, you know, with the different brothers saying the, their parts. Right. So I helped as best I could at 12 years old, helped write this commercial. At 12? At 12. I was in the sixth grade. <laughs> so he, he said, he was like, well, look, I want you to watch what you help produce. So when we bring them in, you can, you can, you and your mom can come on in there. Well, you know, and you can meet them. I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm figuring there, I'm going to go there. It's going to be, you know, the 700 club, the whole set, blah, 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 blah. No, this is a private, the family only Pat Robertson. And there's me and my mom in the audience and that's it. Oh, wow. And my mom tells me, sit there and you got to be quiet. They come out and I'm about to lose my, I mean, I'm seriously about to lose my mind. You know, I'm going, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was all I could do to contain myself. Well, I can imagine. And so they, they happened to, uh, you know, they told him who I was and what, you know, what I had helped do, blah, blah, blah. The whole family comes over. They, I had magazines for them to sign, a couple other things. Took pictures with me. I sat on Fritz's lap like I was, like I was one of the kids, and I got to meet Carrie, Kevin, Chris was still alive, the mom, Doris, and uh, Fritz. And it's a moment that I will never ever forget. Um, I thank my mom to this day for letting me live a dream that I never thought I would ever have. Now, do you still have pictures or autographs? I do, I do still have the pictures, uh, or a couple of the pictures. Uh, if people find me on Facebook, <laughs> find me first. Um, my background pictures of me and the Von Erics. And um, as far as the autographs go, uh, ex-wife decided that I didn't need them as much as I wanted them. So. Oh. Gotcha. <laughs> you know how that game goes. Oh, yeah. So uh, that was my story of when I, I got to meet the Von Erichs, which was awesome. Uh, amazing, amazing uh, moment in time for me. Um, but back to what we were saying, you know, Jim Crockett, he had, from 85 to 88, he was on fire. I mean, they, you could not stop what they were doing. It was an amazing time in wrestling. It really was. I, I was you know, fans these days are getting excited about what they got on the, the spectrum right now. Well, don't, don't jump the gun because I'm, I'm going to lead into that. <laughs> I got you. I, got you. I'm lead in. I can tell you, uh, as far north as Baltimore and Philadelphia, yep. the NWA used to sell out Philadelphia every month. They damn, they damn sure did. In they fact, did. one month, they actually beat the WWE that was running at the Spectrum. Yep. And NWA was at the Civic Center. They had 13,000 at the Spectrum. They had 14,009 at the Civic Center. Yep. 
for an NWA house show, both companies running on a Saturday night. That tells and you. I can tell you that the NWA was huge. That tells up in, you how hot the wrestling was. Think about the numbers that you just said: fourteen and thirteen thousand. Yes, that's twenty-seven thousand fans. You're over 27, 28,000 fans in the city to watch wrestling. In one night. In one night. Two different federations. Yes. That's what a lot of fans can't fathom today is these places used to do this. WWF included used to sell out on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday night. No problem. They would go to your local arena and I think when people say, uh, Jim Cornette, even myself, I've been accused of it, being old and jaded, being the old man shaking my fist at the clouds, I want it back. It's not so much of that as it is we remember a glory time where I could go down to the Norfolk Scope every three to four weeks. And see that son of a bitch sold out at ten to 12,000 people. Right. As they talked them into those seats. Right. Now if I go to a local house show and the WWF happens to be the one in town, and they may draw 3,000. In a 10,000 seat building. There you go. It says a lot. It, it says, I mean, that's what makes the older, older wrestlers and, and, and fans angry almost is... There was a time period where we were, I mean, where wrestling was that hot. And it's like, it, it, it can be there again. Right. Like, man, man. I mean, people think that the Monday Night Wars were hot. No, Jack, this was hot, hot. <laughs> well, now, let's. That, that's a very good segue, actually, into where we're going now. Because you mentioned that being a glorious time. Let us let us fast forward. Uh, briefly, let's touch upon the Monday Night War since you brought it up, and then let's transition into where we are today. Now, I want people at home to know that we're recording this show on September 30th, 2019. This week, the next 10 days will either make wrestling history